October's Tudor Travel Show. It's lovely to be here with you folks. Have you been on any Tudor road trips recently? Well, I love to hear about it if you have, and I have been receiving some lovely emails from folks of late uh, saying how much they've been enjoying the show and also the Tudor Travel Guide mini guides, which are in the Tudor Travel Guide shop. Um, inspiring people to go and explore new places and find out new things. So that is wonderful. And thank you very much to all those people who have contacted me. Now, this week's Tudor Travel Show is action-packed. I start by heading off to Great Bedouin Church and Wolf Hall in Wiltshire, where I'm in conversation with historian Graham Bath, who's an expert on the Seymours and Wolf Hall. And we start off by discussing some very interesting new research which has come to light around Sir John Seymour, Jane Seymour's father. And I must say it does answer a few questions that I've had over the years about the relationship between father and daughter. So stay tuned for that. I also go down the road to a very rainy Wolf Hall uh, where I catch up with what has been going on in the second year of the archaeological digs which have been going on to try and uncover the original Tudor mansion. So find out what has been going on and what the team have been learning about Jane Seymour's childhood home. Now, of course, we're going to do our usual visit to the Tudor Travel Guide news desk and continuing our theme of the Seymours, we'll be travelling to Hampton Court to join in the celebrations at the birth of the new Prince Edward. And finally, I am in conversation with Charlotte Bolland. Now, Charlotte Bolland is the senior curator for 16th century collections at the National Portrait Gallery. And you may be aware that there has been a recent acquisition there of a portrait of Jane Seymour. And I go in conversation with Charlotte to find out all about the secret life of this really fascinating painting. I was blown away by just how much information you can get from one single painting. Anyway, before we start, I wanted to make a very important announcement. So from the 24th of October for four days, Natalie Gruniger from On the Tudor Trail and I, co-authors of the In the Footsteps book, books, will be running a four-day virtual progress. Now, this progress is part of the 1535 progress undertaken by Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, a progress that we write about in full in in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn. But we wanted to bring you your own very special Tudor adventure. And so we have recorded uh, a series of online videos of Natalie and I in discussion about the progress, the context of the progress, which was explosive, I can tell you, as well as doing a deep dive into the locations that they stayed during their progress through Gloucestershire. So we will be visiting Sudley Castle, Tewkesbury Abbey, 
Gloucester Abbey and its immediate surroundings, Leonard Stanley, Barclay Castle and Thornbury Castle. And we'll be recreating these places as they looked during the visit and finding out just what took place there. It's a wonderful conversation and I hope that you'll be able to join us. I have put a link in the introductory text for this episode on Podbean, which will take you directly through to the place where you can sign up and reserve your seat. So make sure you don't miss out. We're starting on the 24th of October and we'll be running on four consecutive days, finishing on the 27th. If you've got any questions, obviously just feel free to email me at sarah at thetudortravelguide.com. Well, with that, I think we are ready to dive into today's episode. So let's head over straight away where I met up with Graham Bay, a historian inside Great Bedouin Church, which is in Wiltshire and not far from Wolf Hall. And here we are in discussion, standing next to the tomb of Sir John Seymour, Jane Seymour's father. And I am dying to find out why Graham Bay has insisted that we meet there. So welcome to, um, well, here we are actually in Great Bedouin Church, uh, close to Wolf Hall. And I'm standing here with a true expert on the real Wolf Hall. Graham, welcome to the show today. Pleased to see you. Now, before maybe we get into why exactly we're here in Great Bedouin Church, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your involvement with Wolf Hall over the years and the kind of projects that you've been involved with. Yes, well, it, it started really because I was studying Savanac Forest, and I've been studying Savanac Forest now for about 20 years. But Savanac, as indeed all the land around here, has been in the hands of a single family for most of its history. So Savanac has been in the hands of the Seymours or their ancestors since 1086. Right. So it was from studying Savanac that I became interested in uh, the Seymours and through that Wolf Hall and other properties that the Seymours owned. Okay and of course we're going to be going to Wolf Hall shortly and you've been involved with an archaeological dig there haven't you over the last couple of years? Yes that's right for the last um, two or three years we've been very lucky that the the owners of Wolf Hall have permitted us to do an archaeological dig and dig up most of their garden. <laughs> Extremely lucky. It's very generous of them. But when I contacted you to say I'd love to come because I obviously came to Wolf Hall last year to see you at the end of the first year's dig and I wanted to come back and, and see what you'd been up to and see what you'd found. You said, hey, well, Sarah, maybe, maybe we need to talk about something else. Why don't we meet at Sir John's tomb in Great Bedouin Church? And that's exactly where we are now. We're standing close to the high altar right next to on my right hand side here is the rather fabulous stone tomb yes this is this is actually a later tomb um it's an elizabethan tomb so it wasn't constructed until about 50 years after oh, he died i see i see uh, so so first of all tell me why 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 are we here Obviously, Sir John owned Wolf Hall, but there's some interesting research you've been doing about him. That's, that's right. Well, it, it is a very spectacular uh, tomb that we have here with this fine effigy of uh, a knight, and he's got his head on a helmet with the Seymour wings uh, attached to it. Uh, and we've got a plaque just above it which says, this knight departed this life at the age of 60 in December 1536. Mm -hmm. And 
that has been quoted so many times in so many books for hundreds of years. Nobody's ever actually questioned that because we have an actual record on the tomb. And of course, uh, you wouldn't expect a tomb to be wrong concerning the date of somebody's death. Yeah. You, it might be wrong concerning the date of their birth, but not the date of their death. Anyway, I have a very good friend at uh, Oxford, Ian Purvis, who noticed that Sir John's son, Edward Seymour, seemed to be arranging uh, his land in certain ways before, as far as we knew, he had inherited it. And that raised the prospect that perhaps Sir John had not died at the same uh, date as shown on his tomb. Mm. Now, for a long time, this is uh, the date of his death has generated some problems because we know that his daughter, Jane Seymour, didn't go to his funeral in December 1536. Mm. Uh, Which was held where, by the way? It was, it was held at Eastern Priory, or at least he was buried at Eastern Priory, and you would have expected that the... Uh, the funeral of the Queen's father would have been a massive affair. Indeed, yes. Uh, but as far as we can tell, Jane didn't attend. In fact, she uh, instead she was at pageants, various pageants uh, in London at the time. Well, well, may I interrupt? Was the courts, because obviously we were in the run-up to Christmas at that time, was the court seemingly carrying on as normal with the usual kind of activities and feasting and hunting and hawking, etc.? It, it was completely as normal. In fact, there, there were massive pageants in London which Jane took, took part in. And as far as we can tell, there was no obvious communication between Jane Seymour and the rest of her family. You would have thought... it. We may have been in an era where perhaps women didn't attend funerals, but you would have expected her to have wanted to comfort her, her own mother mm. at that time. Uh, but uh, Jane didn't at attend the funeral. The other thing that was interesting and has caused a lot of confusion, or a lot of speculation really, is the fact that uh, Sir John Seymour um, received no benefits, no honours and no land at the time that his daughter, Jane, married the king. And under normal circumstances, you would have expected the king to bestow some sort of significant favour on, on his wife's well, father. You certainly saw that with Anne Boleyn, who preceded Abs Jane. Absolutely substantial. And yet, Sir John got absolutely nothing. And this has raised speculation that perhaps he disapproved of the marriage or that the two men hated each other. Mm. Uh, but recently we've discovered, in fact, he didn't die in 1536 at all. He died in 1535. Uh, and we don't know the origin of the error. But, of course, the tomb was created a long time after he died. Mm -hmm. And it may be something just as simple as a monumental mason reading a five as a six. And it's, it's so simple. It's been written down, uh, a, a five as a six. And with that, all the problems that we've had have suddenly been dissipated. Of course they Jane do. didn't attend the funeral because that's not when, when it occurred. Um, Sir John didn't receive any lands or any titles because he was already dead. He died, in fact, before his daughter married the king. 
how did you, I mean, obviously you, you were looking for it because there were all these questions that were coming up. How did you make the discovery? Where did you actually find the kind of the missing link? The, the, the categorical proof came when we discovered that in January 1536, uh, Sir John's son, that's Edward Seymour, he, was, he applied to the Archbishop of Canterbury for special dispensation to administer his father's land uh, who had died intestate. So the last time that we know Sir John was alive was in November 1535. He was certainly dead by the 5th of January 1536. So the likelihood is uh, the date, the 21st of December is correct, but the year is wrong. And we found a lot of corroborative evidence since uh, that they were selling off his, uh, there was an inventory of goods and selling off uh, the goods that he owned. So, so there is a lot of evidence. And, and suddenly it's the, the solution is very, very simple. We've also got a, a solution to a, a problem which is... Uh, has worried me for some time because this tomb says that he was buried first of all in the Priory Church mm. at Easton. We now call it Easton Royal. And where roughly where is that for oh, people it, who are not It's very familiar? close. It's very close to here. It's just about three or four miles away. So it's also quite close to Wolf Hall. And it was the the traditional site of burials of the of the Seymours and uh, their predecessors, the Estermes. Uh, but at the date given there, December 1536, the priory had already been dissolved oh. in the Reformation. And it would have been bizarre to have referred to it as a priory church at that time. Yes, of But course. of course, if it had died the year before, it makes complete sense. So when was the priory dissolved? What's the date? It was, it was dissolved in, um, in about June 1536. I see. So, so, so it all ties in perfectly. Yes, all of those questions solved. I must admit for a long time I was also wondering why didn't Sir John, you know, be made an earl just as uh, Thomas Boleyn was. So now we all know the answer to that. We do and his his son actually benefited significantly because his son got the uh, that's James' brother yes. got the title and the lands that perhaps his father would have got. Yes, indeed. Yes. So looking at this tomb here, I also notice that there's some rather spectacular glass in the window that's above the tomb, and, and that's quite special as well, isn't it? What can you tell us about that? Well, this is glass that was uh, discovered at Wolf Hall in 1881, stained glass, and it was brought here uh, and erected in 1905. And in fact, to... Uh, install the glass here, the tomb had to be altered, it had to be brought out from the wall and, and new windows created. And these windows show the badge of Jane Seymour, which is a phoenix rising from a castle. Uh, it shows the Prince of Wales feathers, um, which is a reference to Jane's son. Mm -hmm, Edward, yes. Edward. Uh, Edward VI. We've also got a, a Tudor rose there, and it's all mounted by the uh, the king's crown. 
Do we have any idea where this glass was found at Wolf Hall or how it was found? Because, I mean, you know, it's not just a fragment, is it? It's, it's the full heraldic symbols, the full heraldic emblem. So quite substantial pieces of glass. Were they just in a window already and they were moved here for safekeeping? They, they were already mounted at Wolf Hall, uh, but I think there are problems at least with parts of the glass because, as you say, the, the emblems are full heraldic emblems. And uh, to my mind, they are a little bit too intact okay, right. uh, for us to trust them totally. <laughs> now, my suspicion is, and it's not proven, my suspicion is that the, that the true Tudor glass from Wolf Hall is what constitutes the roundels there where we can see that uh, they don't match there's no symmetry there, and we've got little pieces, little fragments of glass which been, have been arranged to make like a frame, mm -hmm. and the central emblems, I suspect, are much later. I see. Oh, what a shame. Because <laughs> they are rather spectacular, aren't they? They are still spectacular, <laughs> and they do actually resemble another chapel which is in Leicestershire, where nobody has doubted that they are original. Oh, so there is still a big question mark there. Uh, is it, how, how do you tell if glass is original? What, would, what kind of tests? I mean, for wood, you would do dendrochronology. What kind of testing could you do for glass? You, you would look very closely at the quality of the glass, uh, and to some extent, we can see it here. If, it's, if it were Tudor glass, it's going to be uh, very poor and completely covered in bubbles. Well, it isn't, quite uh, frankly. It, mm. it, is, it looks fairly pristine. And yes, it's got breaks across it, but it seems to me those breaks are almost strategic. You know, they have been positioned <laughs> so they don't spoil the, the picture underneath. I see. Now, as I said, in, we are going to actually be going over to Wolf Hall and having a look at the trenches you've been digging. But since we're talking about glass, I understand that actually um, you have unearthed a, a beautiful piece of original painted glass from We Wolf do, Hall. we do. Just over here, Let's we've got this... Look this spectacular piece of glass, uh, which we found at, at Wolf Hall, and so I, is perhaps I, one of our greatest treasures. Yes, I'm holding it in my hand. So it's a fragment about the size of the palm of my hand, maybe a little bit larger than that. And can you just describe what we can see on it? Yes, one, one of the interesting things you can immediately see about this is that it has been shaped by nibbling, because it's a sort of teardrop tear shape and it's been shaped by nibbling the little edges. It's called grozing, G-R-O-Z, grozing. Mm -hmm. uh, it hasn't been cut by diamond, and diamond cutting came in about 1550, something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be before 1550, which is what we would have expected anyway. Uh, the other thing is that it, this is painted glass. The glass itself is cobalt. Uh, cobalt glass of that shade came in about 1520, so we would expect it now to be between 1520 and 1550. Wow. Uh, and when you hold it up to the light, you've got this wonderful um, shade of blue coming through. Ah, yes. But in the... Uh, I can see that beautifully. That's the translucent light, but mm. in the um, uh, transcendent light, you see the, paintant, the, the painting um, of these like acanthus leaves. And th this is extremely high quality. Obviously, we don't know who did it, mm. but it is 
of the quality of the king's glazier at the time, who was Galleon Hone, mm -hmm. uh, and, and all the top quality stained glass glaziers came from uh, the Netherlands or the Low Countries. I've got a quite a vivid imagination, but I can already see a room growing around this piece of glass and how wonderful to see the dappled light coming through maybe onto some kind of gallery. Yes, oh. it, would be, it would be so fantastic, wouldn't it, to, <laughs> to find the other bits and to reconstruct um. a window. We can't say for this piece of glass that it looks identical to any of the others that we have mounted in the church mm. here. Mm. But we do know that uh, Sir Edward Seymour in particular, he mounted his coats of arms in stained glass I see. everywhere he went. So th there are probably significant other parts yet to be found. I was going to say, maybe you'll find them. So with that, I think that would be a really great time for us to just pause while we head on over to Wolf Hall and have a look at what you've been digging. Let's go. two to three miles down the road from Great Bedouin Church and Graham and I are now standing in the grounds of the current Wolf Hall which of course was the site of the original Tudor building and in fact there has been um, an excavation project ongoing now for two years here to try and find more about that original house so Graham perhaps you could before we get into the details of what you've been finding this year perhaps you could just tell our listeners you know what the purpose of the project is and maybe what the first year unearthed yes indeed well what we're trying to do here is to reconstruct uh, at least in our minds figuratively what wolf hall looked like at various stages through history and we know that there was a very substantial building here in medieval times in particular in the uh, in the 14th century it belonged to sir william astermy who was a very eminent man ambassador to rome speaker of the house of commons he was elected to the trial on 12 occasions so this very eminent man built a stone uh, uh, mason built building here uh, and then in Tudor times, it was massively upgraded. In fact, to some extent, we've, we may have found the date of the upgrading because we've unearthed a record of when Sir John Seymour of Wolf Hall was having a battle with the uh, Prior of Easton. And the Priory accused Sir John of having stolen 
12 ash trees to build his scaffolding here at Wolf Hall and that is 1531 and that gives us a very plausible date for the upgrading of Wolf Hall. Well, that's fascinating because, I mean, the 1530s, everything is happening in the 1530s with Anne Boleyn, obviously, marrying Henry VIII. And then, of course, later on in the decade, Jane Seymour uh, comes into the picture. But so, so you, you wanted to try and understand what the original hall looked like, that original Tudor hall. And you started your dig last year. So what did you manage to do last year and what do you think you found as a result? Yes, well, indeed. Well, last year we were in particular following a wall along which you can see al al along that part of the garden there. Most of it now has been filled in, but we've got these massive medieval stone foundations onto which brick has been inserted. So we've got an original medieval wall there and it would have been massive. It is so wide, it's capable of holding three storeys. And further along, we had a hexagonal tower, which was proud of the wall. And we found another uh, octagonal uh, uh, protuberance here, like a bay window or turret. And, and that's more or less where we left it last year. And we thought, well, it's going to carry on and probably go beyond the garden. Uh, and we started excavating again this year and were rather surprised to find, in fact, that we've got a corner and that it turned a corner abruptly where we're standing now. Yes, and I should just say, actually, we are in the trenches right at the moment. So we're in the corner of the garden at Walpole, in the trenches, and I'm looking at a, as you say, a sort of a, an angle in, in the wall here. And I'm actually standing on one, one aspect of the wall. So what did that tell you, this angle piece here? Well, it, it's, to some extent it has thrown us, but it's, it's led us to wonder whether, in fact, Wolf Hall did, the original Tudor Wolf Hall actually did face north as the current Wolf Hall faces, uh, because it, it doesn't seem to have the symmetry that perhaps we were expecting. Uh, and what we do know is that there is a massive uh, Red Deer Park adjoining called Sudden Park or Sudden Park and that was built at the same time that uh, uh, Tudor Wolf Hall was upgrading using the new fashionable brick. So brick, when brick was brought in here it was absolutely new and we can be certain that the person who was designing Wolf Hall at that time was intimately familiar with what was happening in London with Hampton Court and other palaces. Yes, indeed. Mm, okay, so so that was last year's dig, and you've, you've obviously this year you've found this turn, and you're now beginning to wonder whether the house was orientated in a completely different direction. We yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> a completely different direction, 180 degrees okay. different different direction. So that has thrown us. I mean, what what we can see here is that we have reached the outside of the house because I don't know whether you can see but we've got a cobbled surface outside oh i see so, yes. so the, it's a flint cobbled surface mm. and although most of it is white some of the flints have been struck off to make them black and they make a uh, like a diagonal pattern a large diagonal pattern so there would have been a massive uh, courtyard area here um, just which, out, outside, just the... outside, which could have taken uh, horse traffic. 
Um, so so we're, we're definitely at the end of a building here, mm. the end of the major construction. Now the, the place where we're standing uh, certainly had rooms within it and um, we found some, some more tiles. We'd found various tiles last year which were, which were Tudor, a few which were a little bit earlier, but we found a tile here which is in, was actually in situ, so it hasn't been, uh, not part of the rubble. And that tile is otherwise only found at Clarendon Palace, oh. just outside Salisbury, uh, from about 1230, where it was made. So that does in fact suggest that Wolf Hall was already a very prominent building, perhaps earlier than we thought. By the 1200s, it was already a very wealthy, eminent so, so does that mean then that it's likely that the original medieval hall wasn't destroyed, it was more upgraded by, by Jane Seymour's father when he did those renovations? That, that's absolutely correct, that uh, uh, some of the original medieval building would have been retained, some were upgraded in the new fashionable brick, uh, there were extensions and uh, a complete new sewer system was put put in underneath but of course it, it couldn't necessarily uh, be simplified and go directly where people may have wanted it to go because of all the massive uh, stone uh, foundations which are still here. And the sewer system I, I got to see last year and actually you can still get down into them can't you? They're really really finely preserved. It, it is absolutely remarkable they may be the most intact set of uh, Tudor sewers in the country uh, there's about a hundred meters or so and they form quite a complex network. Now there is a lot of work yet to do with the sewers because where you've got the garter robes, that is the toilet drops into the sewers, those would have been placed on the outside of a wall. Mm. Often where they were placed they were also incorporated with chimneys. So by aligning those garter robes we can see that we've got a north-south alignment of the garderobes and these walls that we see here are also north-south aligned and indeed the current Wolf Hall is still retained on a north-south alignment. So anything else that you, you've unearthed during this year that you've found, you've found particularly interesting? Well it, we've found a lot of finds, I mean in, in terms of the total number of finds from the site we are now in the thousands, literally thousands. Oh, really? Right. Uh, we found six and a half thousand oyster shells alone and many thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of, of animal bones, a lot of uh, um, clothing fastenings, metal clothing fastenings, but some of the things that we found um, this year here at this location was an, were a number of jetons and jetons are counters which were used in order to help uh, do do calculations with Roman numerals. If you try and add up Roman numerals, or worse, multiply Roman numerals, it is an absolute nightmare. So what people had were, were jetons, they're like, uh, like discs, they're like casino chips, I suppose, and you could have those on a board, uh, and that board was called a counter, and that is why we still use the term counter in a shop today. And by, by moving these around, you could do the calculations. And we've got, we found a number of jetons all here. So you're which, holding one in your hand here, aren't you? Can I try and have a look at that? Yes, these jetons were actually made in Germany. This is a Nuremberg uh, 
um, jeton uh, of somebody called Kraus, no, Hans Krauwinkel, Hans Krauwinkel well, there's the a second. Name. There's a name to contend he, with. He should, be at the, he should be playing Widow Twanky at the Hackney Empire, I think. <laughs> and um, so if I just, just get this jet on now oh, and see. put so it I'm, in your hand. I'm holding it in my hand. I mean, it looks a lot like a coin. So how do you know that it's a jet on and not a coin? Well, these, these jetons were in fact made all, um, and used all over Europe. So they, they're fairly commonplace right. uh, for, for doing these calculations. Uh, and yes, they are, uh, they can be identified and they can be so there's a kind of, yeah, so, so they're well-known, well-documented. Well-known, well-documented. Yes, uh, I see. And, and this particular style is well-documented. And the fact that it's made in, in Germany, because it has no cash value, it doesn't actually matter where they were manufactured. I see. So I, it's amazing there to be holding that in my hand and think that at some point, somebody in the Wolf Hall was sitting at a table doing their calculations. Yes, it, it, it makes pieces. makes us wonder, in fact, whether this could have been the treasury to, fa see. to have found so many together. Uh, we know that Wolf Hall had a treasury uh, and uh, we, we could be in the counting house. Wow, well, there you go. So um, what happens from here? Are you planning to extend the dig? What are, what are the future plans for this? Yes, we, we've, we're reaching the end of uh, this year's dig. And as you can tell from the weather, that it, it becomes increasingly difficult to work in conditions like this. So to protect the dig, we will be filling it in uh, uh, at the end of the year. And then we've got to have a plan of campaign for next year. At the moment, as you can see, we've got a very platformed area and it looks like probably all of this had some sort of building or was within a courtyard. I see. So, so, so really, I'm looking, we're looking now across the garden. We've got the, the existing farmhouse of Wolf Hall over to the left here. And in front of us, we've got an extensive lawn, which, as you say, is, is, is quite flat. So you're thinking that that would be building or courtyard what, what's your current hypothesis on that Graham? well we we have through using um geophys we have found what appears to be a wall going east west in the front of the current house another thing that we're we're really keen to try and find is is a mechanism for flushing the sewers because one of the bizarre things about Warfall, despite the fact it's been occupied, we know it's been occupied for over a thousand years, there is no water here. You wouldn't believe that on a day like this, but, <laughs> but the, even the current occupants get their water from a well, which is about a hundred foot deep. I see. So um, how would they have flushed out the, uh, flushed out the sewers? Yes, you can send boys down to, to sweep them out, but they would have needed to be flushed. And so we're wondering whether, in fact, there is a, a mechanism, perhaps at the end of the garden there. When we, when we had an open day here, we had various people who called by, fairly elderly people, who said that when they were young, the ground opened up there and there seemed to be a tunnel. I see. Mm -hmm. Now, initially, I was quite dismissive of that because there are a lot of sort of fanciful tales told about Wolf Hall. But then by the end of the day, about five people had said exactly the same thing. And that was the time to, to be humble mm. and recognise, no, that, that may be perhaps the source of the water which would have flushed the, 
flush the water through the sewers. So you're hoping to, you're going to cover up this year's dig and then we return are. next year to continue? We have plans to continue next year and who knows what the year will hold. I do. So what's your big hypothesis for next year or what would you be trying to test then? About the sewers and the drainage of the sewers for one thing. Anything else about the, the house itself? Well, the, the, actual, the actual layout of the house, we, we have no contemporary record of the of or description of the house and most of our records have to come as we we talked about before Sarah when we have uh, accounts of when workmen are brought in mm. to repair repair tiles or repair windows because of that we know this house was absolutely massive and we also know that it entertained hundreds literally hundreds of people to meals here so it must have been absolutely gigantic at the moment yes it looks grand but we we must have found only about five or ten percent of the total area that there would have been so here. there's lots to go at and am i right in saying that there may be an open day next year for people who might want to come along and have a look at what you're doing that's right we have plans to have have an open day subject to the um, owner's agreement uh, in the in the summer of next year, oh, well, that's when anybody will be welcome. That's something to look forward to, and I must also point out that you have a website, don't you? The Friends of Wolf Hall. The, the Friends of Wolf Hall, if you just Google Friends of Wolf Hall, or the real Wolf Hall, uh -huh. you'll come across the website. And people can donate and support the, the, the sort of the, the, the development and the care for this site, can't they? It, indeed, you can keep up to date and receive newsletters, and if anybody wishes to do donate, uh, they would be very welcome to indeed. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for joining me on what is being, and I'm sure our listeners can hear the pitter-patter, a very, very rainy, wet <laughs> October day here. But thank you so much for, in, uh, for joining us on the show You're today. very welcome. So that was me in conversation with Graham Bathe, first at Great Bedouin Church and latterly at a very rainy Wolf Hall. Um, it's such an atmospheric place, even though the Tudor Manor House no longer exists, or very, very little exists. And so if you have any chance at all, I do recommend that you keep your eyes peeled for that open day next year and see if you can get along there for yourself. Well, as usual now, it's time for a change of pace and we're going to be going over to the TTG news desk and to our news presenter, Robert Cole, to see exactly what has been breaking in the Tudor month of October. Welcome to the October O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. Prince Edward is born at Hampton Court Palace. Henry VII, the first Tudor King of England, is crowned at Westminster Abbey. Thomas More becomes Chancellor of England. And Margaret Tudor dies at Methven Castle, Scotland, aged 52. Good day. There is great rejoicing across the country today as news spread of the birth of a new Tudor prince. At 2am yesterday morning, the 12th of October, Her Grace, Queen Jane, gave birth to a son in the Queen's Privy Chambers at Hampton Court Palace. 
both the Queen and the Little Prince, who is to be called Prince Edward after the Saint's Day upon which he was born, are said to be doing well and in good health. Of course, the arrival of the boy sees an end to King Henry VIII's long wait for a healthy son and heir. Sources close to the King within the King's Privy Chamber report that His Majesty is jubilant and that plans are already underway for a magnificent christening. This looks set to take place at Hampton Court Palace in a few days' time. And so to hear just what has been happening, we're going over now to our roving reporter, Catherine Simmons, who is waiting to talk to us just outside a very boisterous St Paul's Cathedral, where a great service of celebration has just concluded. So Catherine, what can you tell us about how the news was first announced? Well, yes, hello, Robert. I'm not sure how well you're going to be able to hear me over all the celebrations going on with me here. But yes, according to royal protocol, shortly after the safe delivery of the new prince, we understand that the Queen wrote immediately to the King's Principal Secretary, Thomas Cromwell, officially announcing the delivery of a son who was, and I quote, conceived in lawful matrimony. There were some difficulties with the delivery, weren't there? Do we know how long the Queen was in labour in the end? Sorry, Robert, there are quite a lot of boisterous folk uh, hanging around at the moment. But um, to answer your question, yes, we understand through one of the Queen's ladies that Her Majesty endured a, a very hard labour, which she bore with exceeding pain for over two whole days. Yeah. As many people living in London will be aware, there was a most solemn procession yesterday of both religious and civic brethren of the city to pray for the Queen's life and that of her unborn child. Thanks be to God, Prince Edward was born in the small hours of yesterday morning, Friday the 12th of October. As you say, Robert, both are said to be doing well. My, but it is boisterous there. And what about the christening? Uh, we hear it is to take place within the next few days at Hampton Court. Yes, that is absolutely right. Plans are already well underway for a great celebratory christening over at the palace. Although the king already has an illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, the Duke of Richmond, the new prince is the king's lawful heir and after 28 years of waiting, I suspect this is going to be some party with absolutely no expense spared. Do we know any of the details? Not all, but my sources tell me that the prince will be taken from the royal apartments in procession through the Great Hall, through the courtyard and to the Chapel Royal, where he will be christened by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Several of the most aristocrat nobles in the land, including the new prince's half-sister, Mary, are said to be standing as godparents, with the four-year-old Lady Elizabeth, the king's second daughter, also in attendance. There are concerns though, as the plague is rife in London at the moment. Proclamations have already been issued by the Privy Council to forbid any person, not specifically invited by the King to attend the christening, to come to Hampton Court. And in fact, to limit exposure and risk of disease, overall numbers are being carefully controlled. It has been made clear that anyone who has been exposed to the plague in their household, be they well or no are forbidden to access the palace. So what is happening now? 
Well, as you can hear, and we've already said, I am surrounded by great crowds making merry. People are singing and dancing, and music can be heard almost everywhere you go as you make your way to the city. You mentioned earlier that a celebratory mass has been just been conducted inside St Paul's. The congregation are now emerging and I have already seen the Lord Chancellor, Lord Privy Seal, the Marquess of Dorset and the French Ambassador amongst them. You can perhaps also hear the peal of guns being fired from the tower. And it is expected that the church bells across London will continue to ring until well after dark. Fires are due to be lit at dusk on every street corner, and I suspect this party will go on well into the night. And when do we expect the Queen will rejoin the court? As you know, according to the protocol, the Queen will remain in Perder within the Queen's Privy Chambers at Hampton Court for another four to six weeks. After that time, she will be churched and rejoin the court. So we should be seeing her again by early December. I suspect this is going to be a very happy Christmas in the royal household. Well, it's surely the most joyful news that has come to England these many years, and it does sound like everybody is celebrating. So thank you, Catherine, for that report on the new royal birth. And that concludes the October o'clock news. All that remains for me to say is that the TTG News Desk will return in November. But for now, it's back to the 21st century. It's funny, isn't it? We're so used to looking back at Tudor history when we know exactly what's going to happen next. But of course you get a very different point of view when you're actually in it and history is unfolding. Anyway, we're going to continue on the theme of Jane Seymour now because recently online I noticed that the National Portrait Gallery had acquired a new portrait of Jane Seymour and of course my curiosity was piqued. I wanted to know more and particularly Having spoken to museum curators and gallery curators in the past, I knew that quite often there is a really fascinating story behind these paintings. So I made contact with Charlotte Bolland, who's senior curator for the 16th century collections at the gallery. And now you will find us in conversation about what turns out to be a completely fascinating story wrapped around this newly acquired portrait. So welcome Charlotte to the Tudor Travel Show. Thank you very much. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you today because I and I'm sure many other of my listeners saw recently that there was a very interesting Tudor painting came to the National Portrait Gallery and, and I thought straight away how wonderful it would be to talk to you about that painting, which of course is of Jane Seymour. Yes, but um, portrait acquisitions in the uh, 16th century, which is the area of the National Portrait Gallery's collection that I'm responsible for, are kind of somewhat few and far between. So um, it was a very uh, exciting moment. And when the opportunity um, arose 
for us to acquire a portrait of Jane Seymour, um, that it was something that we really wanted to kind of seize upon. I bet you did. I bet you did. But before we get into that, it might be appropriate mm-hmm. just for you to introduce yourself to everyone and particularly what you do and what your job entails, because I'm sure people are very interested. Yeah. So I am Senior Curator um, with responsibilities for research and the 16th century collections at the National Portrait Gallery. And so um, as 16th century curator, I look after the um, acquisition of works for the collection and research those. And then also I'm responsible for the displays uh, in London uh, in rooms one to three. And then with a partnership that we have with the National Trust at Montacute House uh, in Somerset, that we have a number of uh, Tudor and Jacobean portraits on display there. And then also um, to sort of general research into um, 16th century portraiture more broadly. Um, So lots of uh, exciting partnerships with other collections to um, really try and learn more about what I think is an incredibly interesting and relatively unstudied area um, of British art. How interesting. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are very envious of just how interesting (laughs) your job sounds and the chance to get up close and personal with these amazing works of art. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the painting. As I mentioned, the subject is Jane Seymour. Can What I'm going to do is I will do a short blog with a picture of the form, you know, an image of the aforementioned picture so people Mm -hmm. can look at the image as we're talking. But maybe you could just describe it for us. Well, yes, so it's a um, three-quarter portrait of a um, woman facing to the left, and she's got this very elaborate uh, green and gold curtain uh, behind her that is kind of swept up into a knot in the top right-hand corner, that she's got her hands clasped in front of her quite sort of demurely and is looking off into the distance. She doesn't engage um, out with the viewer. She's wearing this very beautiful uh, red velvet dress um, and then uh, an English uh, gable hood that's uh, folded up Uh, in the style that was fashionable in the um, sort of 1530s. Um, And it does have some quite unusual um, qualities when you first see it, because um, there are areas that seem not to have been finished. So her jewels, which you can see where the sort of positions of where they should be, instead of being kind of sparkling and detailed, Mm. they're actually just these sort of rust-coloured blobs of paint, um, which is very interesting. And then also her sleeves, where you would expect there to be, again, a very kind of rich um, pattern, perhaps of a cloth of silver, um, is just a very plain um, sort of off-white colour. So it's clear from sort of first impressions with the painting that it's someone of um, great status, a very um, kind of lavish commission, but that perhaps um, has an unusual uh, element to it. Mm. And she's quite unmistakably Jane Seymour. I think we've all, you know, we've all seen other portraits of her. I don't think the question of the sitter was in any, ever in any doubt, was it? Well, that's the wonderful thing, um, yes, about uh, Jane Seymour, because we have um, the two kind of most famous portraits of her um, being uh, done by the German artist Hans Holbein the Younger, which uh, survive as a portrait drawing in the Royal Collection amongst his whole collection of patterns for physiognomies, um, and then a painting of Jane Seymour that's in the Kunsthistorisches Museum uh, in Vienna. And these are two of, I would say, almost the most kind of iconic um, 16th century uh, portraits produced in England Mm. Um, and so she's very recognisable and what we were able to ascertain very quickly is that uh, this portrait is on exactly the same scale as the Vienna portrait so everything is in kind of the same position and that was what made us um, 
as the gallery so particularly interested in this portrait because she's very recognisable as Jane Seymour. Okay, now I'm always interested in the provenance of paintings and how do they survive, you know. We've, lo- we've lost so many paintings, but yet some of them survive. So what do we know of the provenance and, and how did you acquire it for the gallery? Well, we were able to um, acquire the painting um, at auction and in a way that is actually very common to um, lots of surviving 16th century portraits, we don't have a um, full provenance for the work. Uh, in a way, the uh, Holbein drawings at the Royal Collection are this wonderful anomaly because you can actually trace them um, mm-hmm. through the uh, Royal provenance. Mm-hmm. Whereas for most of the works that we have in the National Portrait Gallery's collection, there's a sort of grey area in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, and so this is the case here, that right. from the um, owners who were uh, selling it at auction, it had belonged to their parents and um, had just hung in their uh, house, that there is of um, bits of information that you always kind of look for. On the back of the painting, this has a slight clue um, of a label that suggests it was a collection in um, St. James's, London, in the n- late 19th century. But that's as far back as we've been uh, able to go so far, oh. we'll keep looking. I bet. <laughs> I just think it's fascinating. I really do. Um, but um, so you bought the painting. You you knew it was a 16th century painting, or was there any question about the date of it? No, we we were um, lucky that we were able to uh, kind of be fairly secure in um, dating of the kind of core element of the portrait because uh, the it, auctioneers had commissioned dendrochronological analysis of the wooden panel support um, before the sale, which was which identified that the tree was felled in the 1530s. Um, so we knew that it was therefore kind of um, a plausibly early 16th century object, um, mm-hmm. which made it of kind of great interest to us. There are a number of... Um, in the kind of world of Holbein's portraits of uh, sitters in Henry VIII's court, uh, became of interest both for the artist and the sitter. Um, and lots of uh, sort of copies were commissioned later in the 16th and earlier in the 17th century. So, for example, um, our portrait of Thomas Cromwell is um, from a, that kind of later period rather than being um, from the mid-16th century. Um, so it was really, we were very interested to see that it was um, from the, the wooden panel support dated from the 1530s. The, the one area that we were sort of had many questions about was the uh, curtain in the background because it was covered by a very thick um, varnish that had, I think the term is kind of alligated, so it had gone into this um, very kind of lumpy, uh-huh. scaly finish. Mm. Um, and because uh, the um, Vienna portrait that was so well-known by Holbein, um, has a sort of pale, um, has a blue background in which um, Jane Seymour sort of casts a shadow to create this sort of sense of three-dimensional space. We knew this curtain was sort of something different from that instead of being um, just a uh, direct replica. And so wondered if it might have been something that was added to the painting in the 17th or 18th century because it was obscured by all this varnish. So that was the one area that we had some kind of, we knew we wanted to research further. So I think that takes us, does that take us into the restoration process and and what you did to restore the painting and and what you found out, in fact? Yes, absolutely. Um, That the uh, first thing that we were able to find out, so you sort of um, uh, document the painting um, using a range of techniques, for example, uh, infrared reflectography, um, which reveals uh, the sort of underdrawing beneath the surface. And actually, in this case, some of the underdrawing can still be seen 
on the surface as the paint layers have become um, more translucent. So that was one method of sort of really getting to know the painting. Mm. Um, unfortunately, X-radiography, which is a very classic technique to see about how paint layers um, uh, have been built up uh, in the painting, uh, wasn't uh, possible, didn't reveal any results because the back of the panel is covered with a layer of red lead paint, oh. which is the thing that sometimes people kind of um, painted onto the um, uh, back of wooden panels. And uh, that meant that um, the sort of the lead in that meant that you would only ever get just a sort of a white sheet on mm. your um, on your X-ray, so obscure, so you couldn't get any um, additional information. Mm. Um, but and then and also um, yes, photography in UV light and uh, photomicroscopy. So we have a wonderful um, uh, microscope table at the portrait gallery to be able to take really sort of uh, detailed images and to understand how the surface was uh, was working. And um, the, the kind of key question that we wanted to ask first was about what this kind of thick varnish that was um, obscuring particularly the background was uh, made up from and how um, if it might be possible to safely um, remove that. Mm -hmm. And so um, that my uh, colleague conservator Laura Hind was working on um, the uh, treating the painting mm. and uh, sort of found that it was actually um, much more um, much easier to remove than we had um, had feared, mm. and so was able to be um, uh, very safely um, treated in that right. way, and to right. kind of um, uncover this really beautiful uh, curtain in the background, which has um, sort of been modelled in an underlayer of grey with then uh, green on top, and this very um, kind of cleverly thought out uh, golden pattern, um, a kind of diaper pattern. Uh, on it, so an incredibly um, expensive mm. bit of material mm. um, rendered in a very um, skillful manner, um, and with sort of details of the um, uh, sort of uh, gilding on the on the fringing um, down to kind of that level. Um, so that was incredibly exciting to discover, and also that the um, pattern extended all the way um, sort of behind her, whereas it had seemed very much that um, it just sort of disappeared into. Um, darkness that you couldn't quite kind of interpret what was going on that actually it became evident that this wonderful sort of green cart curtain disappeared um, into the shadows behind her um, and also at the same time in um, uh, treating the painting that the um, varnish that wasn't quite so thick on the kind of uh, main body of the portrait but when that was revealed this wonderful um, rich kind of red lustrous red of her um, dress and again this very um, ornate thought out geometric pattern on her sleeves really um, uh, came to life in a very exciting way. Gosh what wonderful colours contrasting. I haven't been to the National Portrait Gallery to see this restored portrait yet but um, it sounds amazing and I can't wait to see it but the colours, colours sound incredible. Yes yeah it, it is a yeah really beautiful composition. Now you mentioned before that bits of the painting were unfinished. Why do you, you know, why do you think that is? Um, and also maybe the other question I have around that is when you have a painting that is partially unfinished, can it tell you something that a, a fully finished painting can't, for example? Um, yes, I kind of absolutely. That the, uh, the reason that we feel that it's um, unfinished is because of the areas uh, that have been that seem very very simplified, and what kind of um, unites them. So rather than being um, a 
a section of the panel, for example, you know, kind of uh, the lower left corner or her face and, the, and having the sense that it's been um, perhaps very overcleaned in the past um, and that that has perhaps lost some information, mm. that uh, what you can see is that the, um, it's all the areas that would be gold in her headdress, in her necklace and in the large jewel at her bodice because, of course, we can compare to the Vienna portrait to know sort of what the finished image mm, was yes. uh, intended to look like. Um, and so these are all kind of on slightly different areas of the composition and yet they all have this very um, sort of rough uh, finish, very mm. simplified. Mm. Um, and so what we think is that they were awaiting the moment where the artist would have put on a layer of gilding to then paint the finishing touches um, over the top. So you have that sort of sequence in which um, the painting was build, built up. So it's kind of waiting for that very final stage. Mm. Now, and the other area that's mm. of great interest is in uh, her sleeves and the forepart of her um, dress, which again in the Vienna portrait we can see of this very um, elaborate, beautiful um, cloth of silver. And it was made by having, again, an underlayer of silver that then you paint over the top. And what we were able to reveal during the treatment was that um, the sleeve on the left retained the original kind of pattern of this um, probably kind of pomegranate pattern on this uh, very luxurious textile. Mm. Um, and that there were faint traces of silver underneath these bits of drawing. And so what that suggests is that the silver was put on the sleeve, the mm. pattern was applied, and then at some point, because... Um, silver is a uh, very vulnerable silver leaf that that's been lost and only the tiny bits that were kind of trapped onto the drawing oh. have um, survived but whether it was particularly vulnerable because it had never reached a kind of final complete mm. layer mm. so um so that helped us to kind of understand the sleeves mm. and so what's particularly um intriguing about this because artists in the 16th century would be very much working in a workshop environment that you know that um paintings were sort of team productions of um, different elements and it gives you this uh, sort of glimpse of the pragmatic stages that you go through to um, <laughs> build up the painting and so an artist has clearly spent a lot of time um, on the background mm. um, and this wonderful kind of gilded pattern and then perhaps was just about to move on to the next stage of doing the forepart and the um, and the headdress but the um, sort of flesh tones um, had already been done, you know, so that phase was completed mm. and then it was just working on um, uh, these final details. So I'm, I'm just dying to think, gosh, what happened to this poor guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes, that is the kind of really um, tantalising thing and we don't have, um, because we don't know um, the provenance, who the original patron um, for mm. this portrait was, um, we can only have sort of uh, supposition, but there are a number of intriguing possibilities mm -hmm. um, one of which is that uh, perhaps Jane's sudden death um, restricted uh, sort of demand for her portraiture. But that seems um, less likely because we know that her brother, Edward Seymour, commissioned a portrait of her and paid Holbein um, for it after her death. Um, so she was still sort of um, the, queen, the future king's mother and very much a figure to be commemorated. Was that the um, was that the Vienna portrait by Holbein that you were talking about, or is um, that a different one? A, a different one. We don't oh. know. Yes, we okay. don't know um, which one uh, Edward Seymour commissioned. Okay. That, that hasn't been able to be connected. Mm -hmm. um, and then the um, but then another question is whether it was commissioned by you know a member of the Seymour family more widely, as they wanted to sort of um, champion their position at court 
through their connection to Jane, particularly during Edward VI's reign. Mm. Um, and then if it could perhaps have been the sort of downfall of the Seymour family right. um, in many ways during Edward's reign, um, that if you know the artist realised their patron was never going to pay um, the bills, yeah. <laughs> and so therefore uh, stopped. Uh-huh. Um, and then the kind of a third uh, option, which is perhaps the most sort of uh, dramatic, um, is that uh, Holbein's own um, death was, uh, according to the sort of documentary, seem, documentary record, seems to have been very sudden um, and possibly from plague. And so you, you think of one thing that's going to close down an artist's studio and cause mm-hmm. everybody to just walk away from whatever mm-hmm. they were doing. It is perhaps plague. <laughs> so Absolutely. whilst we don't have the thing, there is something um, uh, very sort of suggestive about this portrait that's kind of so beautifully finished in so many ways and clearly a very, very high status commission because of the effort that has gone into um, this almost additional uh, compositional element um, mm. to the portrait that's in Vienna. And then it's just been sort of completed to 95% and someone then has just walked away. Yeah. Um, and, and do you feel that there is um, a kind of a Holbein signature to this portrait? I mean, obviously it's very similar in appearance to the Vienna portrait. Can, can you tell by certain elements of the way that the, um, the painting's been constructed that it, it could well have been from his workshop? Well, yes, yeah, so I think the kind of closest we can get to is um, sort of Holbein's studio environment because of the um, skill with which it's been executed, that the um, number of uh, portrait painters working in um, England at this date was very small. It was a very kind of restricted pool. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it is so closely um, related to the Vienna um, painting in terms of its proportions um, suggests that they had access sort of to a source image that they could then uh, create this painting from. Um, and with, there are a number of um, surviving portraits that seem to sort of come from uh, the this kind of studio around Holbein. And most relevant as a comparative to this portrait is the full length of uh, Henry VIII in the um, Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, mm. which has very similar underdrawing. Um, and these are, again, sort of associated with um, Holbein's studio, there are sort of some incredibly skillful elements, but it really does seem to be part of that kind of um, uh, group of works um, and that output of, again, this very um, elite sort of royal patronage. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that is fascinating. That is a real deep dive into the painting. <laughs> so um, that, all that remains is for us to all to come and see it. So um... Absolutely, absolutely. It is um, on display in Room 1 at the National Portrait Gallery, and it's really, really wonderful because we're able to display it next to um, one of the great treasures of our collection, which is the Whitehall cartoon, which is um, Hans Holbein's preparatory drawing of Henry VIII, um, which was for the Whitehall um, mural that was destroyed in the late 17th century. But in this um, huge image of Henry VIII, it was always intended um, to be kind of compositionally paired with an image of uh, Jane Seymour. It was a celebration of um, dynasty with having Henry VII and um, Henry VIII and Elizabeth of York and Jane Seymour. And so to be able to um, place Jane Seymour in dialogue um, with the Whitehall cartoon is a really exciting moment. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about that painting today. We are most grateful. Thank you so much for the invitation.
was Vignon, 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 Vignette by Claude Cernizzi, who I believe is a Franco-Flemish composer. Um, and I had an email recently from a listener asking me to say a little bit more about where I get the music from. So there is a wonderful site online for free downloadable Renaissance music and it is all recorded by John Sales. So I will put a link in the credits on Podbean. So if you want to go and have a look at the site for yourself and maybe download some of your own Renaissance music, you will be able to do so. So that brings us to the end of October's show. I hope you've enjoyed our visit over to Wolf Hall and my conversation with Charlotte Bolland about that secret life of a Renaissance painting. But before we say adieu, let me remind you of a couple of things. First of all, if you want to pack your bags and come on your own mini virtual progress, don't forget to click on the link which I will include in the Podbean intro text. Uh, that will take you through to a place where you can sign up for the virtual 1535 progress that Natalie and I will be running online for four days from the 24th of October. And secondly, if you love the Tudor Travel Show and you'd like to support the show going forward and keep it on the road, then you would have my undying gratitude if you would like to become a patron of the show and you can do so by clicking in the on the green button which is in the top right hand corner of the Tudor Travel Show Podbean homepage and I'd just like to thank the four patrons so far who have who are supporting the show that's Jill and Deb and Cindy and Chris thank you so much so I think that's all then for today. We're going to be returning as usual in November where I will be visiting Penser's Place and be going on a tour of the house with one of the guides. And I'll also be talking again to Florence Evans from the Vice Gallery about a very special painting that they currently have in the gallery of Edward VI. So um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the month and all that remains for me to say as usual is happy time travelling. 